Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, folks, to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name is Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today? I'm really well, Grant, and how are you? I'm not too foul. Thank you very much for asking. Not too foul. That is a throwback that's really revealing your age. Yeah, and also where I lived in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Club Veg, USM, anyone? That's it. Wow. Oh, okay, you've really thrown okay, you've really thrown me off my step now. <laughs> well, today we're going to be talking about a brand new type of spirit. I was at uh, a local craft brewing house recently and there was this gorgeous wooden box behind the bar and I was asking the owner, you know, what it was and he told me about a local guy who was making a new single malt spirit that he was maturing in boxes such as the one behind the counter or the bar that were made of Australian hardwoods and I just went, well, I need to know more about that. (laughs) So today... We are talking to John O'Connor. He is the founder of Goodra Digby Distillers and is making these spirits in Australian hardwoods as well as some gin and some vodka on the side. Hi, John. How are you doing? Very well indeed. So this seems to be quite different from where you spent a large part of your career in advertising. Where did this all begin yeah, look, the, the, the Goodrid Igby journey started um, many years ago when I was working on a major spirits brand. And I knew there was a great opportunity for doing a quality rum in Australia, thinking that all the young drinkers who drink far too much of Bundy and Coke must want to go to something decent other than either red wine or beer. Um, but I was always a whiskey fan. And the result was that I was more interested in distilling whiskey than rum. When we were in London, living in London with my family, I decided to have a go at it and I just started volunteering to work for nothing in distilleries to learn knowledge, uh, gain knowledge and uh, build up an understanding of the process. And funnily enough, I ended up at a company uh, up in the highlands of Scotland called Strathern, who made super premium spirits. And the guy there who owned it uh, is now a current shareholder and investor and the director of the business. He and I hit it off, and basically the journey started there. You know, I shared some ideas. He thought I was mad, and he said, let's do them. <laughs> that's, the, that's the genus of all great ideas is that they're, they're insane, crazy. <laughs> well, and so uh, I do recall you telling me once that you were standing in a, in a warehouse full of all, all the whiskey barrels just going, this seems to be a, uh, a not not – good money after bad, but I can't remember the turn of phrase you used, but it was just you were spending all this money for all this space where these things were not doing anything yet. So it was a a town called Pitlockery, a distillery called Edredor. Diageo had just purchased them, and I think they purchased purchased them for the warehouse space, I'm not sure. But the warehouse was acres of barrels, acres and acres of barrels. And the thought hit me then that there's all of that stock sitting on concrete. And it takes so long to monetize your production. And I thought there's got to be a smarter way of doing it. And that's actually was when I started thinking not just about whiskey, but about ways of creating and uh, maturing spirits uh, quickly. And so that's evolved to what we do now, where we're all about quality with speed. And that's an old 
it's saying from my advertising days, quality with speed. Um, <laughs> but that's, how we, that's, that's what we do. So what was the jump from going from whiskey, you know, in oak barrels to suddenly thinking a box and Australian hardwoods? Well, funnily enough, uh, it was high school maths. I was looking at these barrels and thinking, as a a storage device, barrels make sense, but they're really space inefficient. I wonder what else you could do. And I knew enough about whiskey production by then to know that the whiskey uh, drags the flavour out of the barrel. So it's actually borrowed interest. If the barrel had cherry from Portugal or port from the Hunter Valley, whatever, um, you know, or bourbon, uh, the whiskey absorbs those flavours because those flavours were in the wood. And my thinking was that, well, that's a bit like borrowed interest. You're relying upon the outcome of your product benefiting from someone else's product. Uh, so I looked at both the barrel and thought, well, it's all about the wood. A cube has got a higher volume of wood, a higher surface area of wood than a barrel. I wonder if you could make a watertight cube. And that started a process of about four or five years R and D. But I also then thought, yeah, I also then thought about, um, well, why oak? You know, one of uh, the chap I was working with in Scotland had this whiskey that he'd matured in chestnut, and it was absolutely delicious. And the Scotch Whiskey Association were threatening him with, threatening him with jail uh, for actually doing it. Yeah. And so he had to shift his production south of the border. <laughs> That's a, Bizarre. Um, But it got me thinking about different woods, and I thought, I wonder what the Aussie hardwoods would be like. And the idea behind using Australian hardwoods was from when I was a lad, burning wood at campfires. And I remember burning uh, a Jarrah railroad sleeper when I was in Western Australia, and I thought I could smell cinnamon. Um, In fact, I was on a sheep station, and I said to the other guy, can you smell that? And he went, whoa. But then the same thing with, with camping um, up in the snowy, up in the Goodridigby Valley, you know, we were burning wood there and I thought, oh, I can smell different flavours with the different woods. So I thought I'd give it a go. I thought I'd build cubes out of Australian hardwood. And then I started to research it and found that the only wood you could import into the United Kingdom that wouldn't need to be fumigated were Australian eucalypts. And that was because I don't think anyone had ever done it before. <laughs> so that was a stroke of luck. <laughs> well, boy. Dodge that bullet. Or that spray? Yes. So I imported some ironbark, some red ironbark. Um, The heart of the red ironbark tree is bright red. The outside of the tree is yellow, and it's called the tallow wood. And I imported some jarrah and made the cubes um, with the help of an engineering friend. Uh, Went up to Scotland, made the booze, filled them, and thought, I wonder what we'll get. And the net result is eight weeks later, Tony... Raymond Clark, the, the owner of Strathern, called me and he went, hey, you were going to be surprised. Come on up. So I jumped a flight to Edinburgh, hired a car and uh, drove up there. And, and interestingly enough, I'd built four cubes. I built an oak cube as my control cube uh, because everyone else uses oak. Uh, I built a Jarrah cube, an ironbark yellow and an ironbark red cube. Uh, the oak spirit was still clear and tasted like the new make spirit. Um, the Jarrah was yellow but didn't taste that great, to be honest. It was described as a windscreen washer by my now shareholder and mentor, although that changed. Uh, the ironbark red and ironbark yellow was beautiful. You know, the, the, the yellow was this rich golden colour. The red was this deep burnished orange. And it you know, had the colour of a, of a very well-aged whisky, but it tasted great. So we thought we'd had a winner with the ironbarks. The, uh, Tony didn't think we had a winner with the Jarrah, but his 
distiller, was this mad Irishman, who said, hey, John, John, it's actually really good. I think it'll be really good. Just give it some more time. And so we did. And about, well, it was probably a month or two months later, we tasted it again and it had come good. So, yeah, I literally had, you know, 50 litres as my R&D of three good spirits. I put them into little 100 mil bottles, had an art director make design a logo, a, a label, and went started handing them out to all of my mates in the UK, to the rugby club, to, you know, <laughs> stuck them on the bar, <laughs> let people pinch them. Um, but everyone was giving me feedback. I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was my initial R&D process. How was that? I mean, to, to actually have gone off this hunch and have done, you know, to do, done all this sort of stuff and then to actually have that tasting and go, oh, my God, it worked. Well, there's got to be a bit of luck involved in this process. I got lucky with the name, finding out after I designed the logo and settled on the name that it meant pure water on rock. I got lucky with um, the woods actually tasting good. I also got lucky with what's in the woods. You know, there's all sorts of things you get out of Australian eucalypts that don't exist in oak that are actually quite good for you. Uh, although I'm not getting into food health claims, I don't want to do it. But good Rigby whiskey reduces <laughs> let's start your cholesterol. It, let's start calling it a functional <laughs> beverage, shall we? <laughs> what are the adaptogens in uh, good Rigby? Uh, <laughs> it's got resveratrol That's in it. When I heard that it had resveratrol, I was horrified. There's stuff called resveratrol. What's that? And it's um, found in red wine. Um, I was horrified. I thought, oh, my God, I'm killing everyone. And the guy at the science lab up at Lismore went, no, it's actually good for you. It's a cholesterol buster. So I had a bit of a giggle about that. <laughs> so you can get, my point is you can get lucky. Um, but we've since embarked on an R&D program where I've had heaps of cubes made out of different hardwoods and some work, some don't. But we're in a position now where um, uh, I'm ready to release new variants and my, you know, the cube technology has moved on somewhat. You know, basically I've built design cubes that don't leak. It's very hard to get a box not to leak. I know that the, the box that I saw at um, Buckety's in Brookvale was, uh, I mean, it's exquisite. I mean, in essence, the box looks like a work of art. And so, um, and I know that you're not selling every bottle of Contra <laughs> Big in one of these stunning boxes, but talk to me about, like, you said it was about four years, this process of finding a box and working it out. How, how have you done that? Where have you done that? Have you, you've obviously had to use some pretty skilled craftsmen to create that. Yes, yeah, so I used a carpenter uh, in London to build the original boxes and they leaked. And so I had steel tubs made that slot inside them. Um, and that was my R&D. So I thought, look, let's just see if it works. They look great, but they had stainless steel tubs in the middle. But I made veins, diagonal veins that went from corner to corner of the different woods. So, yeah. And then I thought, no, I'll do better than that. I actually lined the steel tub with the wood and the veins. And then I found that, you know, we were actually colouring the whiskey too quickly. Uh, it takes a little bit of time to burn off the acetones in the, in the alcohol. But so, you know, that was all a learning experience. When I got to Australia, I just wanted to make wood-only cubes. And I might add, I've now got three types of cubes. I've got massive industrial stainless steel tubs with wood veins in them. I've got my wood-only cubes, which are my five-litre cubes. And I've got the one you saw at Bucketty's, which really is a work of art. You know, that's that's... $2,000 worth of labor goes into that cube. The guy I found to do it was just through a lot of calling around, and I found this Japanese carpenter uh, called Takashi Nishura. And Tak's a really good bloke. He's a lovely man. Um, he, I got onto him because he made waterproof bathtubs out of beach. And I went, well, he should know a thing or two about waterproof joints. 
sat down with him and in the true Japanese style, he was very conservative and said, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, don't know. You know, a lovely man. He wasn't there to take money. He was there to go, really, let's think this through. But over a period of about six months, we went through two prototypes and prototype one split apart after two weeks. The joints we were using, everything just would expand so much. And I then had to research how much wood expands uh, when it's wet. And certain woods will go 10%. So you've got a, you know, a cube that's 20 centimetres in width and height. It's, it's going to go against the grain. It's going to go two centimetres up. Um, so I started looking at woods that had a lower uh, expansion rate. And I embarked, fortunately, it was one, Jarry is, Tasmania Blackwood and, and Mount Nash, so on and so forth. Um, but then Tucker and I just kept working on the designs, rethinking the way we joined the wood together. You know, and it was a process that literally took... I think we've, we've probably got about 20 cubes in the R&D file and some of them are pot plants in the house, um, but some are holding booze and work brilliantly. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's like most things. You sit there and think your way through it and you think, well, what's really going to work here? You know, I'm not a carpenter, um, but I know enough to know what joints work and I wanted joints that would lock. So we were talking about, you know, dovetail joints and, so on and so on and so forth. And anyway, yeah, we eventually cracked it. We eventually cracked it. Wow. I think that one of the things I love about this story is the actual spirit was developed with people within the industry who are regarded as almost like, you know, just the, I don't know, the guardians of the industry. And then you've got this another like amazing uh, craftsperson working on the box. It's, it's a I don't know. I just think it's a really lovely aspect to the product that um, there's all these elements to it. Yeah, I think I think anyone who thinks they're the smartest person in the room is destined for failure. My attitudes find a lot of people you know, find people smarter than me. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's about craft and artisanship too. And it was very important to me to be able to tell a story around why we do what we do not just for what reason do we do it. The reason is because we want to do quality with speed and monetize our product quickly. But why we do it is because we know there's a better way of doing things and there's an interesting inventive way of doing things. I mean, my vodkas are a really good vodka, but until I can make it completely differentiated and innovative, I'm not going to release it. You know, that's our approach. We, we, everything we do has to have a can we do this better process applied to it and then we look at you know and an an experiment and work out how we can do it better and why we should do it better sometimes you go down that road and you go no i'm just spinning the wheels here but most of the yeah most of the time you come up with something a little bit different and a little bit better tell me about the actual spirit like how does that work does everyone in the alcohol industry just buy a, a single malt spirit i don't like how does that happen yeah there's i mean when you gin makers will generally just buy bulk orders of what's called grain-neutral spirit. You know, it's 97%, 96.5% alcohol. And when it's at that concentration of alcohol, there's not a, no other flavours in it. You know, it can be made from wheat, it can be made from barley, it can be made from, you know, corn, whatever. But whiskey's different. And whiskey starts with a process where you flood barley, malt, that has germinated. You flood it with hot water and really hot water. and then you drain that water off and it's like this brown bonox colour uh, and it's called wort. That then goes into your fermentation tank. You add the yeast and after a period of time, alcohol is produced. It should come out of your fermentation tank at about 5%. You run it through your, your wash 
still, so, you know, your first still, um, and then you run it through your whiskey still, and you'll end up with about 10, 12, maybe 14% of your initial volume in decent booze. But what I've learned is that, you know, I've bought spirit from really big distillers who have 20,000 litre, 16,000 litre stills, and by default, they produce a lot of spirit quickly. What I'm doing with the distillery I'm building is I'm buying small stills, 2,000 litre stills, and I'm just buying more of them because I'd rather they ran consistently than just having one really big still that runs once every two weeks. But the reason why I'm doing that is because uh, it creates a, a better spirit. I think it, my belief is it creates a better, higher quality new make spirit. The other thing that's really important about artisanship and craft in this industry is how long you ferment your wort, ferment the spirit. And the longer the better, uh, unless it's too long. <laughs> and uh, I, I, left, I left a rum distillation in the fermenter for too long, and funky would be the best description for it. But <laughs> you want to have, you want to have you know, the, the yeast. What the yeast does is it attacks everything in the spirit, in the wort, I should say, uh, and then it eats, it, it eats everything except the sugar, and then it eats the sugar that's in the wort last. So you want to give the yeast time to dig, you know, convert the sugar to alcohol. And so we're all about quality with speed, but funnily enough, we're not when it comes to distilling. Slow is best. So now, obviously, you're back in Australia. You have been for a while. Where's your distillery? Like, how big is it? The distillery is tiny. It's in a friend of mine's warehouse, and I'm fighting for space with his racing cars. (laughs) We're out of room. So I'm building a big distillery. I'm building my new destination distillery, hopefully in about two months, actually. But I suspect it'll be in Brookvale. Um, I've got a couple of locations that would be superb and major tourism destinations for, you know, within Manly and uh, one within Barangaroo, if I could afford it. But I, you, know, it's, it's, you deal with so many different authorities, it can be very hard to pull that off. So uh, I suspect I'll be in a warehouse in Brookvale and, and turning that location into a nice, you know, great tasting environment, walkthroughs, the distillery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'd like to try and duplicate the brand story in there and, and you know, have a trout stream running through it and go fly fishing afternoon. Are you going to have trout fishing in Brookvale? I, I, think, it's, I think it might be a bit hard in Brookie. <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, this is very, this is very insular peninsula, but, you know, Brookvale actually has a great little vibe around it now with craft breweries and distillers and, um, you know, it wouldn't be a terrible place to be. Well, it's a hub. Brookie's become a hub. It's, it's back from my old marketing and advertising days. If you've got one car dealer on Parramatta Road, you might see 50 people on a weekend. If you've got 20, you'll see 5,000. You know, going to where others exist isn't about competition. It's actually about drawing a crowd. And so I'm, I'm quite happy to go into Brookville. Yeah. It's closer to home too. Yeah. <laughs> Barangar is so far away. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of sales, how, where are you sitting? Have you got distributors or are you still sort of operating just locally and through your website? Um, so the growth strategy initially was to get into the top end bars and whiskey bars and then use those as you know thought leaders from a product, sell down into mainstream restaurants. <laughs> COVID last year killed that dead. And so I just got stuck into selling the independent bottle shops. And it's gone pretty well, to be honest. You know, I've got about a 90% hit rate with the independents. Once they hear the story, they go, oh, yeah, all right, well, I'll give you a go. Um, and so I've been focusing on the northern beaches, the inner city, 
and um, the CBD in Sydney and also Canberra because I thought the brand name would resonate down there. And so sales there have been quite good and I've been very comfortable with how it's going. I'm looking at putting a distributor on for Sydney for the bars and restaurants because what I've found is it'll take three or four visits to actually get product on shelf in a retailer. It'll take three or four visits to get product on shelf in a bar. However, the retailer is buying two to three cases. The bar is buying one or two bottles. So I think from an efficiency point of view, using a distributor is best uh, to service that trade, you know, the bars, restaurants. Uh, so I'm looking at someone now in Sydney, looking at someone in Canberra to do that for me. I've already got someone in, in Brisbane who's doing it for me. I've got a really big order today through then, which is great. Things have slowed in the last couple of months because of, you know, COVID and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, it just forced me to get smart on digital marketing. And so I've been slowly pumping up the online sales to bridge the gap. But we're really at an interesting stage with the business. I'm at where I thought I would be with all my forecasts. The forecasts after six months gear up a lot. And right now I'm going through a crowdfunding process to raise money, to grow the business, put salespeople on, buy you know, more stills, et cetera, et cetera. So we're actually at a, a, I feel, at a tipping point for the business. Who are you doing that through? A company called Funzition. They're a, a Northern Beaches business. And um, the, the offer went, which should be going live in about two or three days. And we've had plenty of people register, which is great. I'm really happy that, that you know, 150 people think we might be worth investing in. Uh, but I'd, so, so the business is actually at a really interesting phase of its development. I can grow it quickly and what I feel is quickly and, you know, within two years focus on export marketing, which is really what uh, is my major plan for the business. I want to be a global brand and I mean, and that's easy to say, I know, and it's you know, probably arrogant to say it as well. But I want to be in the UK. I want to be in France. I want to be in Southeast Asia. And I want to be in Japan. And I've built those cubes to get me into those markets as a halo product. Now, that's everything I've done is to design, is by design. And if this capital raise doesn't work, there'll be another one. But it just means the organic growth path is a lot slower. It's another two years um, of, of building up the necessary capital and scale in the business. But, you know, I'm actually having a great time doing it. I, I sort of, it's a bit like exercise. I wake up and think, oh, I've got a tasting today. Oh, God. But then I go and do the tasting. I go, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like going to the gym. <laughs> and so I think it's I think it's worth worth pointing out that in the um, obviously there is is your sort of commercial industrial size production, but in the cubes like the one that I saw at Bucketys, the owner of that cube then gets a sing, single malt spirit from you that then they pour into it. Is that right? And then it just basically sits on there somewhere in their house, and it matures within the actual box. It doesn't have any metal container in it or anything like that, does it? So, yeah, there's two cubes that are retail products. Um, the smaller cubes, the five-litre cubes, are wood only. And, yes, I can put I sell spirit and they go into the cube and subject to the wood and the taste profile, you'll get a certain spirit out. Now, I can put something in that's readily matured and ready to drink, or I could put new make spirit in there and just say to the owner, look, this will take two months before it's ready to go. Or uh, I can actually put different veins within the cube and create something that's completely unique. So, you know, customer A might have a mixture of Tasmanian oak and mountain ash veins in an iron bark cube. It literally produces a unique spirit. No one else is going to have that. And then I'll engrave on the cube their name or their logo 
and they can go and show all their friends how clever they are because they've got a unique spirit. That's that's the old Scottish Solera concept. Yeah. Uh, so yes. yes, yeah, and the, the really glamorous cubes that are far more expensive. They're three times the price. Same process. They do have a steel tub in them because they're for export, and I need to make sure they're completely bulletproof. But I've got again got the veins inside and the wood inside the steel tub to mature the whiskey. I actually sell the the wood separately from um, the cube itself, and I let people uh, decide how they want to do it. But the bottom line is when I get going in Asia, people will be buying a tasting pack to design their own product, or I'll design it for them, and then I'll build the the cube around what their needs are. So that's my, yeah, that's a halo product. And it's much easier just to sell them tons of gin and whiskey in bottles but it ain't as cool. <laughs> it's not as cool. It's like, this has got really good bragging rights, John. <laughs> Look, uh, I think that's a perfect spot to, um, you know, put a line under it and say thank you so much for joining us today. It's just, I don't know, I just think it's such a great story and I really, you know, I really hope it goes well for you. I'm sure it will. But uh, thank you for sharing the story with us today. Thank you for having me and thank you for giving me the chance uh, to talk about it. It's um, it's different, but I keep saying it's like, you know, it's good different. <laughs> <laughs> it's good different, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Thanks, John. Okay. Well, thanks, Kim. And thanks, John. That's been a great discussion. And uh, I'm looking forward to trying some of the uh, the drinks because, hey, being a bit of a whiskey head myself, uh, no, that's fantastic. So uh, thanks also to you folks who have been listening. And thanks for joining us for this episode. We'll be back in the not too distant future with yet another informative episode. But until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.